As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This story takes place in the reigns of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, and I. It concerns a town, a village, in the city of Amarna. That village is important because it may be the place where tomb builders lived and worked. In the 18th dynasty, the royal tomb builders were a sophisticated, complex organization. Many of them lived in a village called Deir el Medina. That village is located at Waset, Thebes or Luxor, on the west bank of the Nile. It is an important place, and we've visited before. But I haven't talked about Deir el-Medina for a while. Not to worry, in coming years and episodes, we will have many chances to explore the village. As we leave the 18th dynasty and move into the 19th, the town at Deir el-Medina, the village of the tomb builders, would grow rapidly producing a huge amount of material and many stories. In the 18th dynasty, that village is harder to track. There is less information about the residents and the buildings. We have some that I've covered previously, but recently the village has been a background concern in our narrative. The tomb builders did their work on tombs and chapels, but in terms of the evidence, things are a bit quiet. That changes in the reign of Akhenaten. Suddenly, we get a lot of information about these people. Not at Deir el-Medina specifically, at another place, where the tomb builders moved on Akhenaten's orders. This new village was located at Amarna, and it gives clues to these people and their lives. Today, I want to explore it. Before we begin, I should note that the website for the podcast is egyptianhistorypodcast.com. There, you can find images and references related to the subject. The village of the tomb builders at Deir el-Medina and Amarna offers many useful pictures and a great deal of information. I have put some of these images on the website, and you can find links to the excavation reports that dive deeper into the material. All of those are available for free online, so if you want to learn more about these villages, visit egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Now then, on with the story. The city of Aket Aten, Amana, stretches along the riverbank. It runs north to south, making the city quite narrow and long. To the east, Sandy desert stretches towards the cliffs that ring the city, and at the base of those cliffs, foothills hide secrets. East of the main city, a path runs through the desert. It approaches the hills in the southern part of this area. Here, you are far from the suburbs, and as the land undulates, the main cityscape disappears from view. It is quiet 
isolated, secure. Following the path, you will come to a hill. Going around that hill, a strange sight appears. A wall dominating the hilltop. It is mud brick stretching east to west, and it is featureless. No towers, no decoration, no way of seeing inside. A single door or gate marks the entrance. This strange fortification far from the city hides a village. Amana's version of Deir el Medina. In the reign of Akhenaten, skilled workers from Deir el Medina moved to the new royal city. They came to build tombs, the grand sepulchres of the king and his nobles. But these workers did not live in the main city of Amana. Instead, they had their own town just east of the main suburbs. Basically, Akhenaten took Deir el-Medina, uprooted its people, and gave them a new town in his new capital. This village, called the Workers' Village, or the East Village, is a prominent part of Amarna's history. And archaeological exploration in this area has given us fascinating insights to the life of ordinary people working in Arket Aten. To begin with, let's set the scene. The workers' village at Amana is a large, roughly square compound. It is surrounded by a wall, and the whole thing covers approximately 69 square metres. So it's reasonably large for a village, but it's not that large compared to the main city. Looking at the excavation plans, you get the sense of a cramped, confined area. The streets within this little village are straight and narrow, and they divide blocks of houses from one another. The walled compound which housed these villages was laid out in a very systematic fashion. There are several streets running parallel to one another, and in between those streets, rows of houses were raised for the workers. These houses are practically identical to one another. They are small, rectangular townhouses. And as far as we can tell, every single person in the community lived in one of these. In total, there were 72 houses in this village. So that's 72 families, or at least 72 individual workers. We're probably looking at two to 300 people, roughly. So the village occupies a small hill. It's a square compound, and it's east of the main city. The whole thing seems quite isolated. In fact, if you are at the main city of Amana, you can't see this compound. Hills and valleys block the view, giving a sense that this village was isolated from the rest of the community. That sense of isolation grows stronger when you look at the surrounding landscape. Around this village, there are paths or tracks and even boundaries marked by stones. It seems as though somebody demarcated this area as a special secluded zone, and it's quite possible that Egyptian soldiers or police tracked around the village on a regular rotation. They may have been guarding the workers, who were skilled, high-value employees, or they may have been controlling the movement of people and making sure that nobody left the village without permission. In other words, this village of the tomb builders at Amana 
is isolated in multiple respects. It's far from the main city, it's surrounded by walkways where soldiers could patrol, and it even has distinctive boundaries marked by stones. Apparently, somebody really wanted to keep this area separate. But that isolation was also a problem. How would the workers support themselves? Especially water. If they were out in the desert, far from the Nile, how were they going to get their essential fluids? Well, apparently, the government set up a water relay. Just east of the village, there is a distinct area with evidence for large water jugs. It seems like somebody was delivering water constantly to the village. You could imagine a train of people going back and forth between the Nile and the community in the east. Essentially, the government wanted to keep this village separate, but to make sure nobody died from lack of water, they had to employ water carriers to keep the whole thing working. That must have been a difficult job. First of all, the water carriers had to provide enough liquid for 72 households. That could be two, three hundred people easily. Also, there was a large group of animals at the village. Just east and south of the main compound, archaeologists have found animal pens, and sifting through the remains, there is evidence for goats, cattle, and pigs. It seems like the villagers were keeping a healthy supply of livestock, maybe for food, for milk, and for general use. But when you add those animals to the humans, you have a very large capacity for water. So, out in the desert, supplying enough liquid must have been a great challenge. Putting these things together, we get a sense of how important the tomb builders community was. We don't know much about Deir el-Medina at Thebes during the 18th dynasty, but the village at Amana gives a real insight into the expense that these workers commanded. They were going to build sacred, vital monuments for the king and his nobles, but to keep them operating and keep them alive, the government had to employ many people just to supply their needs. This may have been one of the more expensive industries in the Amana landscape. Today, the walled village is a dusty out-of-the-way place, and tourists don't usually go there. But beneath the sands atop the hill, there are traces of a vital ancient industry. For the locals, the villagers, the settlement was home, and they made the most of it in their own way. Archaeologists have sifted through the ruins, identifying the buildings and objects, and among the discoveries, we get hints of their lives. To begin, we know how these workers constructed the village. To build the walls and the houses, the workers used stone and bricks, and they sourced that material locally. Just near the village itself, there is a large quarry, a pit dug into the hills. Apparently, the workers dug straight down into the hillside to extract the dirt and stone they would need. The stones would go into the walls, roughly, and the dirt would mix with straw and water to make mud bricks. Together, the villagers would use these bricks and stones for their town and various facilities. Doing that, they carved a big chunk of the hillside away. The traces of it are still visible in the landscape. Once the walls went up, 
the builders constructed the houses and the streets. Looking at the plans, you get a sense of a rather cramped environment. Inside the walls, there were five streets that divided the housing blocks. But these streets were narrow, and they left little room for gatherings or leisure. The wind blowing from the north would have come down those streets, turning them into little funnels of air. That could serve a purpose, cooling the area and blowing bad smells away. But on a windy day, with the dust kicking up, walking those streets may have been unpleasant. Best to stay indoors. Speaking of indoors, the houses themselves are quite well preserved. Buried in the sand, the walls retained some of their shape, and when archaeologists cleared them, some of those walls stood a full metre high. That is quite impressive for the ruins of an ancient town. Most of the time, buildings made of mud brick are almost entirely destroyed, and just the foundations remain. But at this village, you can get a sense of the streets and the space. So there were 72 households built into a small compound area. A couple of hundred people, at least, living in a cramped urban space. This kind of population must have produced a lot of waste. Add in the animals just outside the walls, and you have to wonder, how did they keep the village clean? The answer lies in that quarry I mentioned earlier. When the workers built their village, they dug a huge quantity of dirt and stone, leaving a wide pit in the side of the hill. Well, once they were finished with that pit, the locals started using it as a garbage dump. Archaeologists sifted through this dump in the 1980s, and they extracted the remains of ancient life. Much of the rubbish was domestic, the leftovers from cooking and cleaning. There was ash and charcoal from kitchen fires, bits of grain from grinding flour, broken pottery, pieces of linen, and plenty of dung. When the villagers cleaned out their animal pens, they tossed the refuse into the pit. So this garbage dump gives a broad spectrum of ancient life, human and animal. Archaeologists clearing this area had to sift through a lot of crap. That may sound dull or unpleasant, but it is surprisingly useful. Garbage dumps are excellent resources for understanding the history and chronology of a site. In this case, the garbage accumulated in distinctive patterns. Studying these patterns and the layers of garbage, scientists could figure out how the area developed over time. For example, the early village was probably just humans, no animals. The garbage closest to the walls is devoid of animal waste. The further out you go, the evidence for animals starts to accumulate. Tentatively, that suggests the villagers initially lived here without animals around. Later, when the community was established, livestock proliferated more. That gives a hint at growth and demographic changes over time. More animals means more people to tend and support them. More people means more resources for life and work. And more resources means more garbage. So as the locals dumped their waste down the hill, they left footprints of their community's growth. It is pretty cool. 
So, we have a walled town with 72 households. A couple of hundred people, maybe more. The locals mined the hilltops for building materials, and then used those quarry spaces as a garbage dump. Put that together, and we have a basic picture of the environment and their livelihoods. One thing is missing, though. We know how the locals were living, but what about their ideals? To learn about the villagers' beliefs and some of their mental priorities, we have to go outside the town. The village of the tomb builders is remarkable on its own merits, but another fascinating aspect is the evidence these people left for religious beliefs. The workers out here left a great deal of information about faith and worship in the city of Amana. Surprisingly, it did not have that much to do with Aten. Near the walled compound where the workers lived, there are 24 chapels. These are rough, irregular buildings made of mud bricks and stone and covered with plaster. Only bits of them remain today, but archaeologists have explored these chapels and documented their finds. It seems that the locals built a thriving set of religious structures in their vicinity. These chapels could serve multiple purposes, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But what's interesting is that these structures seem to be local projects. There is very little evidence for state involvement or funding or even control. So the locals were building their own chapels on their own initiative, and no one seems to have minded. As I said, the chapels could serve multiple purposes. One of them was the obvious one, worship for different gods. But they could also serve a funerary purpose. If somebody died, then you might worship them at a chapel. Or people might prepare these chapels ahead of time, to provide offerings for their ka, or spirit. Another purpose could be the ancestor cult. The ancient Egyptians had a long tradition of honouring or even worshipping great ancestors and members of their family. They would communicate with those who came before, by writing letters to them, or sending messages, or simply making offerings. I've discussed this previously, now and again, and in the coming years, we will get a lot more evidence for these practices. Suffice to say, the worship of ancestors and family members is a long ingrained part of ancient Egyptian society. It shows up here at the Amana chapels. Finally, it is possible that some of these chapels were used for oracles or fortune telling. This is just a hypothesis, there is no definitive proof for that. But studies of other chapels, like the ones at Deir al-Medina, has shown evidence for priests or priestesses offering to foretell the future and divine the will of the gods. The art of fortune-telling or oracles is another massive topic that we are going to have many opportunities to explore in the future. As we move towards the Ramesid era, our evidence for religious beliefs and practices is going to flourish to a degree not seen so far. So, like the ancestor cults, we are going to get to explore fortune-telling in great detail. It's possible that some of this was happening at Amana. Again, we can't prove that, but it is an interesting hypothesis. Now, 
I've skirted around the topic so far, but let's tackle it. Archaeologists exploring these chapels have found scattered references to different deities. Among the fragmentary evidence, we have texts that reference the god Aten, as you would expect, but also Amun, the Hidden One, a god whom Akhenaten really didn't like. There are also references to Isis, the Great Mother, an increasingly prominent deity during the 18th dynasty. Akhenaten never really had much problem with Isis, so it's not surprising that she would appear. Isis would guard, protect, and guide mothers during the important transitions of motherhood. So, in an isolated community, you can easily see why people would want to honour this goddess. The references to Isis are small and fragmentary, but clearly, people were still honouring the great lady, even in the city of Akhenaten. Other artefacts reference different deities, like Hathor, or Hathor, another of the great mother goddesses, and one we would expect to see in a village. There was also Nut, the sky goddess, who stretched her body across the heavens, and the stars travelled along her skin. There was Rahorakti, the sun god and ruler of the horizon. It makes sense that we would find Rahorakti here. The city of Amana is drenched in sunlight, literally, and metaphorically. But while Akhenaten was focusing on Aten and the various forms of that, it's interesting to see the villagers also worshipping Rahoragdi. Then there was Min. Min, a great deity of Middle Egypt, a lord of fertility and creation. Min was popular as one who could bring forth new life. That could be new life in the sense of crops and growth or new life in the sense of fertility and childhood. So just as we find references to Isis and Hathor, the great mother deities, we also find references to Min, a male god who served a similar purpose. Then we find references to Wep Wawet. Wep Wawet is an interesting one. He's kind of like Anubis. In fact, he is often described as an alternate identity for Anubis. Web Wawet, or the one who opens the roads, is a canine deity, likely a jackal or a wolf, often associated with the wadis or riverbeds out in the desert. You can imagine how living out on the edge of the city and making regular treks up the wadis towards the tombs, the people who lived in this village may have seen many canines around. Honouring a god like Web Wawet was a good way to protect themselves on their daily journeys, and to ensure that, at night, those wolves stayed away from the door. There is a really cool artefact that records this worship. A piece of wood used as a standard for soldiers shows an image of the god Wepwawet. It seems that some of the soldiers living in this area used the symbol of Wepwawet as their sigil or emblem. We know that Egyptian soldiers often used gods as their markers, their identifiers. Well, apparently, some of the soldiers living out here, and perhaps guarding the village, used Wep Wawet as their symbol. Again, this makes sense. The soldiers were walking the desert paths up and down the cliffs and wadis. 
they probably saw many canines on their routes. And to ensure protection from the great god, they carried a battle standard with that deity. Artifacts like these give lovely insights to the behaviour of these people. We can look at the dusty ruins and get a sense of where they lived, but a piece like this gives a sense of what they were thinking about. What symbols inspired them? What threats were they trying to ward off? An artifact of Wepwawet gives us a little hint of that. So multiple deities show up in the chapels at Amana. References to these gods are interesting. They give a sense that at some point, people were able to worship their traditional deities, and the state either didn't care or left them to their business. As I've said, Akhenaten's relationship with the traditional gods is complicated at best. Depending on your point of view, his official policies can seem inconsistent or simply hard to pin down. With that in mind, we don't want to read too much into this behaviour. It's possible that the workers living in this village were able to pursue their traditional beliefs, and either the king didn't know, or he simply didn't care. Akhenaten was focused on his affairs. What the people living in a small village were doing may not have been a major concern. Again, we have to treat all of that carefully. But the chapels at the eastern village, the village of the tomb builders, raise interesting questions. Some of the people living in Akhenaten city were clearly worshipping the old gods. And apparently, the king or his government wasn't that concerned. The walled village developed in the reign of Akhenaten. It was a product of his initiative to build a new royal city. And since Akhenaten wanted his tomb, and the tombs of his family in that region, the tomb builders came to settle here. But if Akhenaten was the catalyst for the town, what happened after he died? Surprisingly, the East Village carried on. In fact, not only did it carry on, it grew. In the reign of Akhenaten's successors, Nefer-Neferu-Aten and Tutankhamun, the village expanded. A new section with new houses developed on one side. That section is easy to identify. It grows out from the old wall, like an appendage on the original town. Apparently, the next rulers planned to stay at Amana, at least for a while. We know that because texts recovered from the site give information about the chronology. Bits of pottery have dates written in black ink. Most of these dates come from Akhenaten, between year 7 and year 17. But other dates include year 1 and year 2. That is important, because Akhenaten did not move to this area until year 5 or 6. So the lowest dates, 1 and 2, probably belong to his successors. Which one? Unknown. We only have the numbers, no cartouches or names. In context, it might be Nefer-Neferu-Aten, possibly Nefertiti ruling as pharaoh. Or it could be Tutankhamun in the first part of his reign. So when Akhenaten died, 
work carried on at the village. How long did it last? Well, at least a couple of years under the new rulers. But it could have been longer. Earlier, I mentioned a rubbish dump at the site, and the evidence from that dump can help us understand the history of the settlement. Archaeologists working in that material have identified something remarkable. Apparently, some of the early rubbish dumped in pits bears the name of Tutankhamun. There are other names like Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Merit-Aten, but Tutankhamun is unusually prominent in the rubbish dumps, and his name appears in very specific phases. What gives? I've had trouble finding a satisfactory answer. In some interpretations, Tutankhamun abandoned Amarna early in his reign. Archaeologist Barry Kemp, who led excavations at the site for decades, has recently written, quote, There is no sign that Tutankhamun ruled from Amarna. But that seems to contradict the evidence. Artifacts from the city bear this king's name, and many of them come from the East Village. So the young pharaoh was clearly here for a while. How do we reconcile that? Another interpretation suggests that Tutankhamun abandoned Amana as a royal residence, but work carried on in the city, at least for a few years. Ironically, this interpretation also comes from Barry Kemp, but back in the 1980s. Potentially, the royal court left the city of Amana, but the decline of the suburbs and the outer villages took longer than that. On the surface, that scenario seems to fit the evidence much better. Even when Amana was no longer a royal city, it did not become a ghost town overnight. Perhaps the tomb builders stayed here for a while. Eventually, King Tutankhamun did abandon Amana, and the city slowly started to shrink. As it did so, the East Village, the village of the tomb builders, also started to decline. Its population departed, and the town eventually became a relic. This move could have happened slowly, a few families at a time, or perhaps it was quicker, a mass exodus on government orders. Either way, a few years after Tutankhamun left, the East Village came to its end. The tomb builders were leaving. Surprisingly, the workers didn't return to Deir el-Medina, their original base of operations. Excavations at Deir el-Medina have not produced any records of Tutankhamun, or even his successor, King Ai. So it seems like the workers may have gone somewhere else, another village or town in the region. Where could that be? Well, we may have an idea. In the 1930s, archaeologists found the remains of a city not far from Deir el-Medina. This city was called Aten Chehen, or the Aten Shines. Personally, I like to call that place Aten Town. You may have heard of Aten Town because, recently, Egyptian excavators resumed work at the site. A massive project is underway to clear the town of Aten Chehen. Excavating and documenting that city will take years. But there is a strong possibility that Tutankhamun and King Ai will show up in the remains. If they do, 
that might give us the answer to our question. When the tomb builders left Amarna, where did they go? Well, apparently, they did not return to Deir el-Medina. But perhaps they went to Aten town. Future excavations may prove me wrong, but for now, it's a possibility. Anyway. In the reign of Akhenaten, work at Deir el-Medina, the village of the tomb builders, stopped. The pharaoh abandoned the Valley of the Kings and the city of Waset, or Thebes. When he did so, he left Deir el-Medina essentially useless. But then Akhenaten moved to his new city, and when he did so, he brought the tomb builders with him. Dozens of families moved to a small village on the outskirts of Amarna. Here, in a walled compound, the old tomb builders started a new community. Today, the remains of this village are well preserved. Archaeologists can identify the houses and domestic space, the animal pens used to support the villagers, the houses of worship in the form of chapels, and here and there, traces of their beliefs. References to deities, old and new, hint at the lives and attitudes of these people. The village of the tomb builders was a restricted area. Located far from the River Nile, it was difficult to access by foot, and dirt roads around the village marked the boundary where soldiers, like the Magi, patrolled the region. Those soldiers guarded the tomb builders from external threat, but maybe they also kept them in their place. Out in the hills, east of the main city, Akhenaten's tomb builders lived and worked in secrecy. There is a lot to unpack from this town, and to be honest, I have barely scratched the surface of what we know. Amana's East Village is a fascinating place. It is also quite complicated. The settlement's history is difficult to pin down in terms of chronology. We know it started in the reign of Akhenaten, but when did it end? The site might have carried on for several years after Akhenaten died. However you mark it, the settlement probably operated for two decades, give or take, a good chunk of time for the average human life. To supply the town, government employees came regularly. Water carriers brought liquid from the Nile. Porters carried grain for making bread. And the villagers themselves kept animals in large numbers to provide meat and milk. For their spiritual needs, the locals built chapels, where they honoured various gods, family ancestors, and maybe even oracles. Again, that is just a small part of the story. There is much more to tell in the future. For now, it is time to bring this chapter to a close.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 